0: Online at KFUO.org.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO. On this Tuesday, July 18th, we're coming to you live from the International Center of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod here in Kirkwood in St. Louis County, where it is hot. It is hot. The last couple of weeks of July in the upper Midwest on average is the hottest two weeks of the year, and it's living up to that billing. It's about close to 100, and it's going to be a little hotter the next couple of days. Where is How is it where you are? You may be listening in the southern hemisphere or up in the Arctic regions or wherever. We are literally covering the world here on Worldwide KFUO, and uh, we're glad you're joining us today. I am your host, I am Pastor Charles Henriksen, the pastor of St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Terre, Missouri, located just a little bit south of St. Louis. And uh, I often ask our guests what's going on at their church. Let me tell you about something that's going on at our church at St. Matthew in Terre. We're going to be hosting a, a one-day workshop called Everyone His Witness. Everyone His Witness on Saturday, August 19th morning and uh, early to mid-afternoon, and lunch will be provided. This is the Synod's new uh, program for personal witness or evangelism, and we have the opportunity to do a, a pilot workshop for that. And so we're having our own members, but also we're inviting others who'd like to come, and that'll be Saturday, August 19th, everyone is witnessed. If you're interested, check out our website, stmatthewbt.org, and send me a note, Contact me there, or else you can find my name, Charles Henriksen, on uh, the lcms.org church worker locator. Henriksen is spelled H E N R I C K S O N. Henriksen, no D in it. All right, so that's what's going on at St. Matthew's besides our regular Sunday morning services at 9 a.m. and Bible class right after that. Today we're talking about uh, Article 5 of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Love and the Fulfilling of the Law. So the questions we're going to be addressing today are things like, how do you get right with God? Is that even important anymore? A lot of people don't even think, is there a God and how do I get right with Him? That's not even on their radar. And then the whole matter of good works. What about good works? Where do they enter into the picture? So these are topics we're going to be talking about today with our guests. And we invite your participation in our program. We have a toll-free number all across America, North America, in fact. Uh, That toll-free number is 800-730-2727. Again, 800-730-2727. And locally here in St. Louis, area code 314-821-0850. Again, 314-821-0850. You can also email us with your Comments or questions, that email address is kfuo at kfuo.org. We have a couple of very good guests here on our program today, um, a, a veritable regular, uh, my go-to guy here when I need a guest, and that is Pastor Warren Worth of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Arnold here in the St. Louis area. Welcome back, Warren. Glad to be with you. And what's going on at Good Shepherd and Arnold? Well, and
2: we kind of have the laid-back summer schedule, so not a lot of extra activities, but certainly still our divine service at 9 a.m. every Sunday. And... Uh also Bible class, Sunday School and Bible class at 1030 in the morning. And then we still have our weekday Bible classes, too. We have a Tuesday evening Bible class, a Wednesday morning Bible class uh, that is a women's Bible class, and a Wednesday evening Bible class. So we invite those in our area to come and join us. If you have questions, you can check us out at GoodShepherdArnold.org.
1: Very good. And and your voice is very familiar to our listeners. Uh, your regular segment on, is it Friday mornings? The Creation Club, right? It has been Creation Club. Uh, there's some changes in the programming now to allow
2: more time for the Bible study. So okay. Creation Club will not be airing at its regular time. And I'm working with uh, Andy Bates uh, to figure out how we will continue uh, sharing some of that information with our listeners. Part of that may be uh, as part of Andy's uh, programming. That Faith maybe I'll, and family I'll, or... I'll join him on Faith and Family from time to time. We've discussed other possibilities like doing some podcasts and so forth. So stay tuned for. Further information about that, but uh, that there are some changes. We're not going to go away completely, but it's a change from what
1: it has been. Very good. Uh, I'm glad that you're still going to be part of uh, KFUO. You add a lot to the ministry here. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And then that. our other guest, who is online, is uh, also a Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor, and that is Pastor David Jewell, J U H L. He is the pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Moments, Illinois, just south of Chicago. Welcome, Dave.
3: Thank you, Charles. It's good to hear your voice, as always.
1: As always, as of last week, Dave (laughs) Jewell and I were roommates out at a very good conference uh, in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Tell us about that, Dave.
3: Uh, Charles and I were roommates uh, together uh, while we attended the Consortium for Classical Lutheran Education Symposium, which was held at Trinity Congregation in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Uh, It's a group of uh, congregations around our synod and some homeschoolers as well. Who uh, use a classical education uh, way of teaching uh, children, and it was it was a nice week out there. Uh, temperatures were warm, then it cooled off. Uh, the thin air plays with one's uh, breathing. Yes, it, it, I, that's the first time I've ever been that high up. Uh, Cheyenne sits uh, over six thousand feet above sea level, so. It was a unique experience to be out there, but a learning experience, too. Yeah,
1: and Dave and I are both uh, teachers uh, for this online homeschooling uh, organization called Wittenberg Academy. So we had our faculty retreat the day before, and then the CCLE, Consortium for Classical Lutheran Education Conference, uh, right after that. So a good time was had by all. So we're, we're glad to have you back on the program here, Dave. Thank and, you. It's
3: uh, always glad to be a guest.
1: Good, good. And as I said, we're discussing the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Pastor uh, Worth, why, what is this thing called uh, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, and how does that fit into our program, which is called Concord Matters? Very good. Well, the Augsburg Confession was
2: a confession that our Lutheran uh, forefathers made uh, at the Diet of Augsburg, where they confessed before the emperor, Charles V, uh, what they believed and taught and confessed on the basis of God's word. This over against uh, the Roman Catholic abuses at the time.
1: What year would this have been?
2: 1530, the year 1530. And so we just celebrated uh, Augsburg Confessions uh, presentation on uh, June 25th. Many of our churches did. And uh, so on June 25th of 1530, they made that presentation of why they were taking the stand that they did, what they believed. And they began by showing that they were not teaching anything new. They were not departing from the Catholic faith in the sense of the historic Christian faith. And they showed from Scripture and from uh, the Church Fathers and so forth that they taught basic Christianity. But they did also correct certain abuses. Uh that had crept into the Roman Catholic Church over the years, and so they also list those abuses that they are correcting and explain why they needed to be corrected and why they corrected them on the basis of God's Word and in alignment with the Gospel because central to all of this is the teaching of how we're saved, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord, not by the works of the law. And so that is something that you're <coughs> going to hear again and again in that confession. Well, the, the Roman Catholic theologians uh, responded to that uh, and basically rejected what they had to say. And then the Lutherans then came back with the apology that is a defense of what they had previously confessed. So is sort of a longer explanation of, of many of the same <sighs> articles, many of the same teachings, and going into more depth and defending. So apologia has this idea of defending oneself. Or they're not like saying, a rebuttal. Uh, right. They're not saying, I'm sorry. They're saying, I'm defending myself, rebutting the false accusations that had come against them.
1: Okay, and so this followed in the next year, 1531. Correct. And who was the, the primary draftsman of this apology? Philip Melanchthon is really the main one behind this. And he was kind of Luther. Younger assistant, right-hand man, able scholar, very much
2: so. Yeah, very articulate and a very good theologian. Although he was not an ordained pastor, sometimes people forget
1: that. Yeah, I, you know that's kind of he was called to teach theology. So okay, uh, we could we could go back and forth on that. Anything to add on that, Pastor Jewel?
3: Uh, no, not really. Uh, pastor Worth did a fantastic job in summing things up. Uh, it's uh, Melanchthon uses a tremendous logic, and it especially comes forward here in uh, uh, Article 4, Article 5, and so forth, with uh, uh, a major premise and a minor premise, which leads to the ultimate conclusion. And once you understand a major and minor premise, it's it's a little bit using some logic. Uh, The major premise that uh, he lays out in this particular section of the apology is to be forgiven equals justification. Uh, You're justified. And this happens by faith alone. So, ultimately, uh, by faith alone, we are justified. So if you understand that kind of uh, triad there, that little corollary, how this works everything begins to open up in this particular section of the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. It's brilliant logic.
1: Now, Pastor Jewel, you mentioned these articles, Article 4, Article 5. In the Augsburg Confession itself, uh, Article 4 on justification was just a, a few short sentences. In the Apology... It goes on for many, many pages, and you could even look at this Article 5 called Love and the Fulfilling of the Law as an extension of Article 4. Um, What does that tell us about uh, what the Lutherans realized was the underlying problem behind the abuses they were correcting uh, that they talk about in the Augsburg Confession? Do you follow where I'm going with this?
3: Yes. Uh, The reason why, if you have a copy of the Book of Concord, if you look at the apology, you'll notice that this particular section just keeps going and going and going and going, whereas in the actual Augsburg Confession itself, it's just a short little three- or four-line paragraph, and then it continues on into five and six. But this section in the Apology, it's almost as if, you know, you want to sit there and look at your watch and say, is, is, I think, haven't we talked about this enough? But what we're dealing with here, though, is the chief teaching of Holy Scripture. If you get the chief teaching of Holy Scripture correct, if you explain it in such a way that Scripture explains it, you'll get it right. If you misunderstand it and make uh, make uh, man the center of things rather than uh, the uh, atoning death of our Lord Jesus Christ and what this brings us... Uh, you're not going to get it right. And so Philip Melanchthon takes great excruciating pains to work through logically how this uh, how this great work on God's behalf for us uh, plays out.
1: So this uh, wrong understanding of justification, that is how a person is put right with God, showed up in the various abuses— that it entered the medieval church, such as in the practice of penance, the mass, and so forth. And what, what Melanchthon and Luther and others realized was the underlying issue was a wrong view of justification, and then the symptoms showed up in these various wrong practices. Is that how you read it, Pastor Worth?
2: Certainly, absolutely. You, you see the evidences of that in all kinds of things, where people had... The idea that they had to earn God's
1: indulgences, relics, pilgrimages, and so on.
2: Exactly. We have to buy our way to heaven, buy our way into God's good favor, as opposed to being saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And so here as we consider love and the fulfilling of the law, Rome was teaching that, you know, justification happens when you love and do good works, and it's not by faith alone. And so that's that's why there's this long defense of justification by grace through faith alone, and yet pointing out that that doesn't mean that love or good works are optional. That would be another abuse, and and Melanchthon takes care to make sure that, though they are wrongly accused of saying we don't need to do good works, that's not our position because it's not what the Bible
1: says. Yeah, yeah. And so part of the reason for the length here is we're in this section called Reply to the Opponents' uh, or Adversaries' Arguments, is Melanchthon takes on, it's like a great big Bible study, he takes on all the passages that Rome was using, cherry-picking, to make a case for, well, it's up to our works, and he's showing that it's not, and, and fulfilling. he's filling in the passages that they conveniently omit as well. All right, very good. So that gives us the context here. So let's get into some new material. We left off, our program left off last time. Uh, in Article 5, we had gotten through Paragraph 74, so I'm going to pick it up at Paragraph 75 Because faith makes sons of God, it also makes co-heirs with Christ. Because by our works, we do not merit justification through which we are made sons of God and co-heirs with Christ. We do not merit eternal life by our works. Faith receives it because faith justifies us and has a reconciled God. But eternal life is due to the justified, according to the passage in Romans 8, verse 30, those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, Pastor Jewell, it seems that Melanchthon here is presenting two possible ways by which people could uh, gain eternal life, at least hypothetically. Uh, What are those two options that are are put forward here? And one of them drawing, and one of them's right.
3: Well, the, the correct one is we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. The other option would be we are saved by our works alone. Uh, we are saved by what we do. And uh, perhaps we could even go as far as to say God pours into us this thing called grace that helps us, kind of gives us this little uh, kick in the rear end to uh, get busy and do good things for other people so that we can earn our way uh, into eternal life. But uh, here Melanchthon makes clear... Uh, It is faith that makes sons of God, and it also makes co-heirs with Christ. We don't merit anything. We receive God's merit to us in Jesus Christ and in his blood and in his righteousness.
1: Why is it important that he says that we are co-heirs with Christ?
3: We are co-heirs Christ, because every promise that God makes uh, to, uh, to and through his Son, he makes to us as well. Uh, it's like somebody uh, handing out a will, so to speak, or, or a testament, and saying, in this document, I give, leave, and bequeath you the following things. And so he has given, left, and bequeathed to us uh, this wonderful forgiveness and life and joy that we have uh, in Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection. And so he makes us uh, co heirs. We have sonship with God, as some translations say, Mm -hmm. through Jesus Christ. And that's ours as a gift, by believing that he has taken care, he being Jesus, has taken care of everything necessary for our salvation.
1: So being sons of God, how do we get there, uh, Pastor Worth? We get there as
2: God's grace comes to us in the gospel, and that gospel, whether you're talking about the written and spoken word of God or gospel as in baptism, yeah, which is, which is the word of God.
1: Get with, joined to Jesus.
2: And we get joined to Jesus, absolutely, which again, in Romans, Paul makes a big deal of that, that we were crucified dead and buried with Christ and raised with him to walk in newness of life as his sons and daughters. So we have been born again by God connecting us to Jesus, and therefore we receive the benefits of what Jesus did on our behalf, both his perfect life as well as his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection.
1: Now, you mentioned uh, one of the inheritances we receive is is eternal life, uh, resurrection life. Jesus was raised from the dead. What does that mean for us? You talked about walking in newness of life now. Uh, what does that involve, and is there anything more to it than that? Well, certainly. I, I think maybe where you're going with this is the idea of
2: not only eternal life hereafter, but also new life now. Well, I
1: am talk- I want you to explain both.
2: Uh, okay, and so so the, the here and now benefit is especially that Paul makes a big deal about with his speaking about this in Romans 6, which Luther picks up on when he talks about our, the meaning and importance of our baptism, is that having died with Christ and been raised with him, the old you— the old me that was a slave to sin and did not obey God, hated God, fought against God, now is dead. And a new you, a new me, has come forth out of the waters of holy baptism to live with God in righteousness and purity forever. So now he says, so consider yourselves dead as far as sin is concerned, but alive as far as God is concerned. Don't give the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness that leads to death anymore. Instead, yield uh, the members of your body to God and and serve God uh, by, and, and again, he ends that whole section by saying you're not under law, but under grace, which is a wonderful thing, which ties very much into what we're talking about here, that the good works we now do in this new life we have been given in Christ are not a result of the compulsion of the law. Instead, they are the result of responding to God's grace, his love for us in Christ Jesus, that has forgiven our sins and made us new people. Uh, We are born again. We're made new in Christ. We've been raised from the death of sin and slavery to sin, to be God's people. And we long and we desire to to obey God and to serve him and, and obey his commandments. And we do that willingly and joyfully as the Holy Spirit who worked repentance and faith in us also sanctifies us and helps us to grow in this new life in
1: Christ. And so this is where he will go when he discusses love and the fulfilling of the law and good works. Yes, that is true for Christians. It doesn't merit our... Our justification or our forgiveness, but it is the life of the Christian who's been raised with Jesus. Absolutely. so it's a response and it's the fruit of of that faith in Jesus and the grace of God that comes to us only in Jesus. Now Pastor Julie, about this inheritance, being co-heirs with Christ, um, what does that mean for when we die?
3: What it means is that we have hope. And it's not, uh, as the musical South Pacific says, I'm stuck like a dope with a thing called hope. (laughs) It is a sure and certain hope that we, as Jesus has been buried uh, in the tomb and has risen from the tomb, we too, when we are uh, put into our graves as Christians, have the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. We have this right now in Christ, and yet in its fullness, when he does return to judge the living and the dead, we too will have a share in his inheritance at that time.
1: Now, this eternal life, Pastor Jewel, Is this going to be just like more of the same going on for billions of years? I mean, like uh, when you were out in Cheyenne about a week ago, you were feeling pretty punk, you know, with the heat and the elevation. I just had a little internal distress over the weekend. Is it going to be like this forever? And what about my sinful thoughts? And is is that all going to be part of eternal life, just like life now except times a billion?
3: God, no. Uh, as we see in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, we are raised a new creation. The body is sown into the ground, uh, uh, this, uh, this dead thing yet to be raised by the word of Jesus Christ, raising all those from the grave and glorifying them on that last day, giving them the body that was meant to be ours uh, at creation, Uh, totally perfect. No more worries about altitude sickness. No more worries about dyspeptic stomachs. No more (laughs) cancers. No more hospitals. Uh, We are a new creation, and thus we shall always be with the Lord that way, living uh, in his face before his face for all eternity in joy in the heavenly mansions.
1: That sounds pretty good. I want to get in on that. Me too. (laughs) All right. So that gives us something to look forward to. And it's all by God's gift through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this gift is for you, dear listener. Uh, Go to your local church that teaches the gospel of Christ and get in on that. This is the most important thing in life is that you know your Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what life is all about. It opens up a new life to you now and even better in the age to come. All right, uh, next paragraph, 76. We'll just get into this at least before the break. Uh, Paragraph 76. Paul tells us the commandment about honoring parents by mentioning the reward to that commandment, added to that commandment. He does not mean that obedience to parents justifies us before God, but when obedience happens— and those who have been justified, it merits other great rewards. Let's talk about that a little bit here. Pastor Worth, are there rewards in this life for obedience to God's
2: commands? Absolutely. That's the promise. And that's what Paul in Ephesians 6 Uh, makes a point of saying, you know, honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And so when God uh, adds that promise, we can be sure that he will be faithful to that promise. Now, the thing that he's going to take pains to show here is that we're not talking about promises of the grace necessary unto salvation, but rather that God promises rewards in this life. and, And you just stop and think, but in regard to that commandment, when a person learns from little on to respect and honor and obey the God-given people placed over him in his life, life is a lot happier and better as a rule, as opposed to people who from little on are rebelling against their parents and their teachers and uh, law enforcement, and they often have a very short and unhappy life. You get into trouble with the law. When the
1: family structure breaks down on either side, the the children being rebellious or the parents not doing their job, we have chaos, as you can see in most any... uh, Dysfunctional city.
2: And it's harmful to the individual as well as to society. And so that promise uh, is something that we should take seriously in terms of bringing our children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and helping people to understand that the fourth commandment, respecting our parents and other authorities, is given to us for our good. And But again, that's not saying that if you're good enough as obeying your, your parents, you're going to go to heaven because of it. And he's going to make a big deal of that in a moment.
1: Yeah. And we're going to come back to this because even for uh, the promise of rewards in this life, sometimes Christians who are doing the best they can are wondering, how come I'm not seeing these rewards? And we'll get into that a little bit after this break. You're listening.
0: Concordia University, Wisconsin in Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. In Jesus' parable of the
2: weeds, why does the owner of the land allow the weeds and the wheat to remain together until the harvest? Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll look forward to Sunday morning talking with Dr.
0: Carl Fikentcher of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, about the parable of the weeds. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO.
3: Hi, I'm Mary Schmidt, Manager of Development for Worldwide KFUO.
0: And I'm Pastor Mark Hawkinson, Donor Care Specialist for the station. We want to tell you how happy we are that you're listening and being blessed daily on Worldwide KFUO.
3: If you would like to become a day sponsor or simply give a
2: gift to our listener-supported ministry, call me, 314-996-1518.
0: Or call me, 314-996-1520. And you'll find the Give Now button at kfuo.org. How much do you know about the Old Testament? It's the question Brent Strong, Emory University professor of Old Testament, is asking in his new book, The Old Testament is Dying, a diagnosis and recommended treatment. Analyzing 879 sermons, published in a collection called Best Sermons, he discovered only 21% were sermons from the Old Testament, down from years previous.
3: In a 2010 Pew Forum survey, just 55% of
2: Americans knew the Golden Rule wasn't one of the Ten Commandments.
0: Mark Brettler, professor of Judaic studies at Duke University, disagrees with Strawn's hypothesis. He maintains there's not enough data to prove Bible knowledge is dying. He says it reminds him of Mark Twain's famous quote, Reports of my death have been greatly exaggerated. Engage with the Bible in its impact and influence over the centuries.
2: Brought to you by Museum of the Bible.
1: Back, we are back on uh, Concord Matters here on worldwidekfuo.org. Uh, Uh, And we welcome your participation in our program again. Uh, Our toll-free number is 800-730-2727. And locally in St. Louis, 314-821-0850. You can email us, kfuo at kfuo.org. I'm your host, Pastor Charles Henriksen. Our guests are two fellow pastors, Warren Wirth here in studio, and Dave Jewell. On the phone, we're in Article 5 on love and the fulfilling of the law from the apology, of the Augsburg confession. And we just got a uh, reading uh, paragraph 76 where it says that there are rewards <clears throat> in this life for obedience to God's commandments. They don't merit eternal life, but there can be temporal rewards, meaning rewards for this time uh, by keeping God's commandments. And, uh, those also are by grace. They don't earn our merit with God, but God graciously gives us rewards for obeying his commandments in this life. But then Melanchthon wisely gets right into the next problem. While that may be the case, and we do sometimes do receive rewards for obedience to God's commandments, sometimes maybe we don't see that, and that's hard for us to understand. So that's where Article Uh, Paragraph 77 is going. Let me read some of that. Paragraph 77. God, God puts his saints to work in various ways and often holds back the rewards of works righteousness. He does this so that they may learn not to trust in their own righteousness and may learn to seek God's will rather than the rewards. Pastor Jewel, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, where you think you've been doing pretty well, uh, trying to keep God's commands, and your life still stinks.
3: All the time. All the time. This is a very timely uh, section of the uh, Apology to the Augsburg Confession to read. Uh, Just this last Sunday, for those of us who preach the one-year cycle of readings, we heard uh, St. Luke in Chapter 5 uh, give us the uh, miraculous catch of fish uh, that the, uh, the disciples saw after Jesus had uh, taught the people on the boat. And uh, Peter, uh, And it, it's tough to decide whether or not he's being a wise guy or whether or not he's actually uh, obedient to the Lord's command to cast your nets out in broad daylight in deep water. Uh, says, okay, at your word, we'll do it. And then there's this gargantuan catch of fish. I think of Martin Luther. And uh, in one of his sermons on that particular text in Luke chapter 5, especially for us pastors, because uh, let's isolate that, uh, and it it happens, I think all of us see that, uh, all of us Christians see that, but especially we pastors see this too, uh, especially in a day and age where uh, Christian congregations, many of them in rural and small-town areas, and even in the uh, inner cities of our country, are uh, shrinking. Luther says if you're a pastor and if you're engaged in preaching and teaching your people and the response hasn't been all that great he doesn't say quit he says don't be dismayed and diverted say to yourself god has ordered me to proclaim his word and that's what i'll continue to do if it doesn't always prosper god knows why if my work does thrive it pleases both him and me now you can take those words of luther to pastors and you can put it in just about any station in life you wish. If you're a dry cleaner and you notice that people just aren't bringing in dry cleaning like they used to, simply because we've gone to a wash and wear society, still, he says, put your hand to the plow, or in this case, the press, uh, in pressing clothes after you've dry cleaned them, and do what is given you to do in your calling in life each day. If it doesn't always prosper, God knows why. If your work does prosper, not only does it please God, but it pleases you as well. We keep pushing forward toward the goal of eternal life with our Lord Jesus.
1: You know, I think uh, you mentioned about, especially for pastors, I think of the, like the call document for the prophet Isaiah or Jeremiah. The Lord told Isaiah, I'm going to send you to a people who aren't going to listen to you. Or like Jeremiah, he was sent to preach a message and what did it end up getting him? He got tossed in a pit, literally. Uh, so that can happen. But uh, uh, so sometimes you are obeying God and it doesn't show up in successful life and successful results and so forth. You you might say, I've been good. I've tried to keep God's commands. Where are my rewards? And that leads into where he goes next in paragraphs 77 through 79, and let me read that. Uh, This can be seen with Job, Christ, and other saints. I mean, think about Christ himself. Nobody was more obedient than he, and he ended up getting deserted by everybody and and crucified. All right, going on. And many Psalms teach us about this. They console us against the happiness of the wicked. As Psalm 37 verse one says, be not envious. Christ says in Matthew 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. By these praises of good works, believers are undoubtedly moved to do good works. Meanwhile, the teaching of repentance is also proclaimed against the godless whose works are wicked. God's wrath, which he has threatened against all who do not repent, is displayed. Therefore, we praise and require good works and show many reasons why they ought to be done. Pastor Worth. um, even though we may not see temporal rewards to our good works, and we may see the wicked doing quite well, um, that that can be a a discouragement, I suppose. And what should encourage us? Well, what should encourage us is always the Word of God. Mm
2: -hmm. Because when we look at the world and don't see what we believe, would we should expect to see, the wicked are going to be judged by God and punished immediately, and the righteous are going to be rewarded immediately and be blessed in this life, uh, we, we're often confused. But we, you know, we have to look to the Word of God, the promise of God, and especially the cross of Christ. Mm. Because if you think Romans 8, you know, in the midst of all kinds of tribulation, how do I know that God really loves me? You know, he who spared not his own son, but gave him up all for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who can bring anything against those whom God God is chosen. You know, can anything in all creation separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? No, it cannot. And that's where you have that final confidence that clinging to the promised mercy of God in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, that's how you know that God loves
1: you, even though outward circumstances may lead you to doubt it. Yeah. And I would recommend to any of our listeners who are struggling with this question, it's it's the age old question, why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? This comes up over and over again as Melanchthon notes in the Psalms. And to me, the parade example of the Psalm that gets into this the the most is Psalm 73. I I really recommend that you read Psalm 73. If you're ever struggling with this question, why why, uh, do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? Why am I suffering? Does God really love me? And I see all these people who don't care for God doing quite well. Uh, read Psalm 73, and I think you will be blessed. All right. Um, so he says, We pray, therefore, we praise and require good works and show many reasons why they ought to be done. What was the accusation, Pastor Jewell, against the Lutherans regarding good works?
3: They don't believe in them. They don't believe in them at all. They, they, they think all good works are bad. They All they want to do is cling to their faith in Jesus Christ and then go home and sit on their hands and just do nothing but just say, "I'm I'm justified by faith, I'm justified by faith, I'm justified by faith. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's you've got to get this business in order. Mm-hmm. First comes faith, then works follow they will follow because a lively hope in Jesus Christ means that people will be busy in doing what they're doing in, uh, in order not only to help keep society moving forward, but also to show forth the love of God in Jesus Christ by the very fact that God has given them places to, uh, to, to be in in life and tasks to do in those places in their daily life to, um, to show forth the love of God in Christ. So
1: let's be clear about this. Lutherans... ...are in favor of good works. I certainly hope so. Yeah. It's just we got to not put the cart before the horse. It's the ordering, as you say. And then Melanchthon cites a couple of examples of this, uh, biblical Old Testament examples that are mentioned in the New Testament in paragraph 81, which is where we're going next. Paul also teaches this about works when he says in Romans 4, 9 through 25, that Abraham received circumcision. He did not seek to be justified by this work, for he had already attained justification through faith. He was counted righteous. But circumcision was added so that, A, Abraham might have a written sign in his body, B, admonished by this, he might exercise faith, and C, by this work, he might also confess his faith before others and by his testimony, invite others to believe. We'll get into the next one in a moment. But Pastor Jewell, uh, how does this bear out what you just said about getting things in the right order?
3: When we get things in the right order, we, we see that we when we have already attained justification through faith in Jesus Christ, uh, we don't have to struggle with God. We don't have to struggle with our neighbor to figure out, a way in which we can please God. Let's use circumcision for an example. We don't say, well, I have to go get myself circumcised, that way I can uh, show God how much I care about him, and also then show my neighbor how much I care about God. First, thing, first things first, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness.
1: Now, Pastor Jewel, what chapter of the Bible is that recorded in?
3: Genesis chapter 12.
1: Well, he believed, yeah, he believed the promise in 12, and then that particular verse... I, I seem to recall it was in Genesis 15. 15.
3: I was get 12 and 15 yeah. uh, toggled up
1: there. 12 is the initial covenant and 15 is the affirmation. You know, look up at the stars of the sky and so forth. Right. And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. And then where was circumcision added?
3: That comes along, what about Genesis 17? Exactly or
1: so? so. Your memory is correct. So Paul's point is, and his readers knew the Bible, that Abraham was already justified in chapter 15, and circumcision was added in 17, which proves that he was justified by faith apart from works of the law. Right. Good, good. All right, and then now Paul cites another example here in paragraph 81, and I'll ask Pastor Worth to comment on this one. By faith, Abraham, not uh, Abraham, Abel, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice. That's quoted from Hebrews 11, verse 4. Because he was just, that is righteous, by faith, the sacrifice that he made was pleasing to God. It is not that he merited forgiveness of sins and grace by this work, but he exercised his faith and showed it to others in order to invite them to believe. Why was Abel's sacrifice accepted and Cain's not?
2: The writer to the Hebrews points out it was a matter of faith. Cain was offering his not in faith, but as a work and almost even a cheap work. <laughs> a cheap work. That's something he, he begrudged God this. And uh, Abel's was uh, uh, freely done out of faith in God. He gave the fat of, of the sheep, and so for the best, the first and the best, and the fat to the Lord, and was evidence of of his response to God's goodness to him, and so it was faith that received God's grace and God's blessing, and so it was pleasing and acceptable to God, whereas uh, when Cain, uh, Cain's heart was not right with God, and you see that particularly when God confronts him about this whole matter, because his... uh, his attitude toward God is is like a petulant child, mm-hmm. uh, re- rebellious, begrudging, a chip trying on to his justify shoulder. himself. Exactly, trying to justify himself and make it as though God somehow is at fault. God is not fair when it's the do other way. Do people still do that today? All the time is our Maybe na- sometimes I think you and I might do that too. Our sinful nature. Every uh, yeah, even Christians, our sinful nature that adheres to us is certainly inclined to that point uh, to that point of view, which is why we daily repent of that and turn again and again to God's grace given to us already in our baptism where he forgave our sins, joined us to Christ, and gave us this new life to fight against our sinful inclinations, such as that wrong attitude towards God and that wrong attitude towards works and and what works are pleasing to God.
1: And that's where we're going next in paragraph 82 about a, a wrong way to look at good works. Let me read paragraph 82. In this way, way, good works ought to follow faith. That's what Pastor Jewell said earlier. Uh, Yet people who cannot believe and be sure that they are freely forgiven for Christ's sake, and that freely they have a reconciled God for Christ's sake, use works in a far different way. When they see the works of saints, Christians, uh, they judge in a human way that saints have merited forgiveness of sins and grace through these works. So they imitate them, thinking that through similar works, they merit forgiveness of sins and grace. They think that through these works, they appease God's wrath and are counted righteous for the sake of these works. And I'll go on to paragraph 83 and 84, I think, also. We condemn this godless opinion about works. In the first place, it hides Christ's glory when people offer to God these works as a price and atonement. This honor, due to Christ alone, is credited to our works. Second, they do not find peace of conscience in these works. In true terrors, heaping up works upon works, they eventually despair because they find no work pure or important or precious enough. The law always accuses and produces wrath. Third, such persons never attain the knowledge of God, for in anger they run from God who judges and afflicts them. They never believe that they are heard, but faith shows God's presence since it is certain that God freely forgives and hears us. I'll start with you, Pastor Worth. What is the wrong way to look at works that people of this world do? Well, the wrong way to look at works is though as something
2: that's going to buy you into God's favor. That's going to earn God's favor and make you right with God, as though it's something I have to do before God will love me, before
1: God will accept me. And these works may be very praiseworthy works, but if we trust in them for our salvation, and this is the point Luther makes in the Heidelberg Disputation, they may be works that are rightly praised by the world, but if we trust in them, they become damnable.
2: Exactly. So, But we have to... uh, uh, avoid the other thing, which in the formula of conquered when they continue this discussion, mm-hmm. they point out, we don't say that good works are evil. It's the it's the misuse of them, and the trusting in yes. them that becomes idolatrous, even. You know, if I'm trusting in my works, instead of the work of Christ, you know, that's I'm barking up the wrong tree. The glory belongs to Christ. It's His work, His perfect life, His sacrifice on the cross, His victorious resurrection, His merit. That's where my confidence comes, and He gets all the glory. And the works that I do, when I do them rightly moved by the Holy Spirit, having received the grace of God in Christ, then that's well-pleasing to God on account of Christ. But both the quantity and quality of our works will always be lacking. We're never going to be perfect. Our works are never going to be good enough, precious enough, as it says here, to give us the hope of everlasting life. But rather, uh, it's only on account of the merits of Christ that what we do is a sweet-smelling savor, a a sacrifice well-pleasing to God on account of
1: christ you know i'm just thinking of john 15 and galatians what is it galatians 5 about i am the vine you are the branches connected to me you'll bear much fruit and in galatians where uh paul talks about the fruit of the spirit and so drawing our life from christ we do produce good fruit but if a person is not connected to christ they may produce what is like artificial fruit or wax fruit it has no life in it. It looks good on the outside, but is not truly alive. And Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So we have to understand, and
2: again, our Lutheran uh, theologians make the distinction between civil righteousness mm-hmm. and and what counts in the spiritual realm in, in the presence of God. So, you know, the works that the heathen do are good insofar as they are things that God... expects. They contribute to. to good order in the world. Exactly. So you could have a heathen ruler who, by being wise and, and just in his uh, ruling, uh, is is a blessing to keep order in the world. And yet, when it, so in the worldly f- sphere, in the mm-hmm. s- civic uh, mm-hmm. sphere, that's a good thing. And yet... It, with his heart not being uh, filled with Christ and the grace of God in Christ, you know, that it's not a good work in the presence of God and certainly does not earn eternal life. And so with that we make the very careful distinction, and again, do so on the
1: basis of the clear text of Scripture itself, which spells this all out. Now, Pastor Jewell, here in paragraphs 83 and 84, Melanchthon lists one, two, three, three things that are wrong with this wrong view of works. Can you explain them?
3: Sure. Uh, The first thing you want to do as a Christian is not get in the way of the glory of God. You don't want to obscure that. And the fact that uh, your salvation is a gift from God, and not anything that you did, you can read Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 to learn more about that, Uh, there is no way that you can offer a blood sacrifice and atonement to uh, appease God's wrath. That's already been done in Christ. And to say, well, by doing these things, I'm offering to God this blood sacrifice to cover my sin. You're robbing God of his glory in Jesus Christ, which is uh, one thing that you would not want to do. Uh, second of all, it says that you, you'll never find peace of conscience in your works. Um, the one thing about... The law is the word enough is never enough. Mm -hmm. The word enough itself is a law word. I've done enough for God. Well, the Holy Scriptures will show you, no, you can never do enough for God. And in time, after you heap work upon work upon work upon work, is this enough? Lord, is this enough? Really, I've done this. Is this enough? You'll realize that enough is never enough enough the law as it says here always accuses and produces wrath pretty soon you're going to do so much that you're just going to say well that's enough lord i I think that's enough for me Uh, finally you'll never attain the knowledge of god because ultimately because the law does accuse you'll hate god you'll run away from him because enough is never enough you'll never believe that god has done everything it's, it's all fulfilled. It's all perfected in Christ. That's what he says on the cross. It, mm-hmm. is, it is finished. It is perfected. It is fulfilled. I have done it all for you, and by faith, these are now yours. So rather than heap up enough, believe that Christ has done enough, the greatest good work for you.
1: Yeah. Here, Melanchthon lists these three points of what's wrong with this view of works, and the first two— he uses, I don't know how many dozens of times, it's like a leitmotif or a refrain running through the uh, whole Lutheran Confessions, or particularly the Apology, uh, that our teaching gives, A, all glory to Christ, and B, true comfort to troubled consciences. You'll see that over and over and over again, this this uh, worship of Christ, that we don't want to rob him of his glory, and secondly, this pastoral concern because only this teaching of justification will really give a comfort to a troubled conscience. Because if you're thinking it's any part you to merit your salvation, either you're going to end up in the ditch of despair on the one side or the ditch of pride on the other. You know, the Pharisees thought they were pretty hot stuff. And so uh, they, they fell in the pride thing. But for any of us who have ever been in a spirit, super spirituality movement... Which comes in many forms, and I've been there and done that and got the T-shirt. Uh, you end up in despair. You're, the pressure of of thinking I'm not a first-class Christian. And maybe some of our listeners out there have been in churches like that, where that you the pressure was on you. You've got to measure up to these first-class Christians, and if you don't, well then you really feel the pressure. And am I really a Christian at all? You're going to end up in despair, and then that leads to the third point you're not going to come close to God and call upon Him because you think you're, you're too far away. Anything you want to add on that, Pastor Jewell?
3: Yes. Um, so often, we pastors will hear someone when we invite someone who hasn't been to church in many years or we haven't seen in a while, and they're going through a rough patch in their life. And the one thing I hear from them from time to time is the phrase, Well, Pastor, I'd love to come to church, but first I've got to get right with God before God can get right with me. There's something that I have to do to make amends to God, and then I can come to the house of the Lord. Well, you got the cart before the horse once again. Uh, you come to church in order to hear that God is right with you in Christ. It's all taken care of. You don't have to worry about, what do I have to do to please an angry, wrathful God? He's already been pleased in the blood and righteousness of Jesus. Come and receive his gifts of forgiveness and life for you. It's ready for you right now. We want the Word wants to take your conscience and cleanse it and give you a good conscience before God and before your fellow man.
1: And Pastor Worth, do you see your Christians in your church then this leading to a life of love and good works?
2: Certainly. Once once you understand and, and receive in faith uh, the blessings of what Christ has done for you, uh Wild horses can't keep you from wanting to respond with love and good mm-hmm. words. Well,
1: you know, because we love because he first loved us. Mm-hmm. Thank you, gentlemen. We've been listening to Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO.